1: Welcome to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Maya Wollner, your podcast host. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Benoit Majerus about his recent book, From the Middle Ages to Today, Experiences and Representations of Madness in Paris, published in France under the title Du Moyen-Âge à nos jours, Experiences et Représentations de la Folie à Paris, by Perigram Press in 2018. Benoit Majerus is Associate Professor of European History at the University of Luxembourg, his research interests include the social and material history of psychiatry, as well as the history of World War I and World War II. In addition to the book we will be discussing today, he has also written Among the Mad, A Social History of Psychiatry in the 20th Century, also in French and published by the University of rennes Press in 2013. Good afternoon, Benoit. It's great to have you on New Books in Science.
2: Thanks for having me, Maya.
1: So let me start by asking you, what inspired you to write this book?
2: Uh, There are two main reasons for writing the book. The first one is quite simple. It's an editor, Peregrine Press, who specialized in books on Paris and uh, who several years ago had published a book entitled Crime in Paris and now wanted something similar on on madness. And uh, on my side, after having published the book you mentioned, uh, Among the Mad." which was a classic academic monograph, I wanted to do something that covered uh, a larger period and that also addressed a larger public. So that, that, that are the main two reasons for, for the book.
1: Elsewhere, you've described the sections of the book as capsules, which give a sort of impressionistic overview of the ways in which the experiences and representations of madness have changed over time. How did you address the question of continuity or rupture in the period that you cover?
2: So the, the book is divided in six larger chronological chapters and for every chapter there's a, there's one clear pitch so an, an overarching story for example the chapter about the middle ages is entitled madness but an object that you cannot found but to tell this larger story I have then chosen smaller stories that illustrate the, this pitch and if the larger story makes sense for the for the history of of western europe in general the examples are more directly linked to the, to, to the history of Paris and that's why you sometimes have this, this impression of, of, of a more impressionistic um, approach, but that is linked that I have to, to, to fit my Paris little stories into a larger uh, story that, that is also valuable for, for other parts of Europe.
1: And why did you decide to select Paris as your geographical focus? And maybe you can also address the idea of madness that we sometimes have as a sort of specifically urban problem or a
2: problem of civilization. Well, again, there's a very pragmatic answer, a paragraph, the editor published this book about Paris. But then there's also a, a second answer that is perhaps more stimulating on the intellectual level is that Paris is a very interesting standpoint for an historian to observe the history of madness over over time. And this is for one major reason the city has been from the Middle Ages on a place where political, religious, economic, intellectual elites are are, are heavily present, and all these people are writing. And so, um, if there are written sources, a historian can tell uh, a story. And and you have written sources on madness from the from the tenth century on, which is very early. And what is also interesting is that this production of sources never stopped till today. So for other places in Europe. You have more sources, but only for, let's say, the 15th century or the 18th century or something in the 9th century. But what is interesting in in Paris is that you have this continuity of of sources from the Middle Ages on. And then as as Paris is also an important political center, all this form of marginality, so not only um, madness, was heavily controlled. And so you have, from very early on, institutions... That enclose madmen, not only madmen. So you you don't have in, in, in already this specialization, you know, in in the nineteenth century, but you have institutions that that enclose marginality, and again, these institutions produce written sources, but also material sources that allows again new insight in how society managed soci- uh, managed madness. And then um, a last interesting point is that what you mentioned is that. Um, from the from 19th century on, madness is closely connected to to the city. So, uh, what is interesting in the Middle Ages, madness is more linked to 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 a rural society, to root, and not to the city. And so, for example, when the king is mad, he's coming to the city to to calm down. And that's something for us today. It seems evident that it is the city that produces uh, madness, and that is a, a pathogenic environment. And so. From, from from for the, for the last chapter, um, this question of uh, does the city produce madness and how does the city produce madness and why does the city produce madness is also very very present.
1: In your research, how did you come overcome the problem of retrospective diagnosis?
2: Uh, I would say that that's a question I'm not so much interested in today. Most historian would argue that retrospective diagnosis is not very. It's not, an, it's not an historical question. Um, I think that psychiatric diagnosis always makes sense in a specific historical context. And um, trying to apply diagnosis from today to a former historical period seems problematic to me for two reasons. First, it, it in a certain way deconsolidates the diagnosis from today by applying it to the past. And secondly, it applies a concept to a period where it does not make sense for the contemporaries and is therefore anachronistic. And, and uh, saying that someone is schizophrenic in the 17th century by this retrospective diagnosis doesn't help me to understand what is happening in the, in the 17th century. So um, I think that most of the historians today no longer are interested in this question of retrospective diagnosis.
1: So I was really taken by the images uh, that you included in the book, which to me are sort of a mixture of captivating, disturbing, mundane and artistic Um, to let the readers know what they range from. They include maps, architectural drawings, religious images, photographs, administrative charts and beyond. And so maybe you could tell me why did you feel it was important to include such a wide range of images? And what motivations ultimately influenced how you selected the images that you wanted to use?
2: So that was for me, till now I've only written books and articles where sometimes there was one or two image and most illustrate <laughs> something, but it, never that it was really part of, of, the, of the narrative. And so choosing the illustrations was one of the most fascinating tasks in, in making uh, the book. And the reason for for this presence of images are, are manifold again Paragram is an editor that really values Mm. illustrations and really puts energy and time in integrating them into a text. And uh, into a text, so they are part of the story you tell. It's not only to illustrate the text, but they tell their own story. Um, A second important point is perhaps the distinction between um, the maps and the other illustrations, because the maps were produced specifically for the book. So they are, in a certain way, my interpretation of the past, uh, such as the text, and the other images. Uh, are primary sources produced by contemporaries and allows uh, me and also uh, the readers to see which sense the contemporaries gave to, to madness. Um, and today, when you use images, you are often motivated by two reasons. First there's this general idea, which is perhaps not completely right, but that's the general idea that books for a larger public should contain images because it makes the book more attractive. But images as for the historians or as sources make also sense in, in, in to, for, for two reasons, Or for me. For centuries, most of the people were not able to read text. So for example, images in church, churches were the way how the world was explained to them. So it was a very visual culture. and. Um, I think that um, this this importance of the visual culture is not only true for middle Ages and early modern times where people were not able to read, but it's still, or is again, value, uh, valuable today. You know, we, we look perhaps more at Instagram or we spend more time with Instagram than with long text. And secondly, uh, images also offer um, a concentration of interpretation and sometimes tell a story more effectively than, than several lines of, of text. So, um, choosing the images took at least as much, as, as much time as writing the text, because the challenge was to find new images. Uh, if you look at books on madness, you always find uh, the same images, often people with suede jackets, or you have these very classical images of uh, Charcot and uh, the hysteric women in, in the Salpetriere. So the, the goal was to find for every period new images that have not already been reproduced in, in, in other books. Um, it was also important to find images that tell a story. So not just to, to to take a picture of a famous psychiatrist. You can take one, but there's no sense in, in taking 20 because that's, that's not telling uh, a story. And then a, a last uh, thing that I find interesting is that um, when I was looking for all these images, um, I also um, experienced how much the digitalization of primary sources has completely changed the way we do research today especially for the Middle Ages and the early modern times, you have today a very large corpus of, of sources that are available online. And even for the 19th and the 20th century, on the beginning of the 20th century, numerous newspapers and magazines are today available online and are very easy to find, thanks to Gallica. So the French one have a very centralized platform of digitized sources. And so you can also, you have a very large um, source corpus where you can look into, and that was also very fascinating.
1: I have to say, I really found the selection of images very successful. And I was impressed, actually, with the novelty of of the images that you included. So I think that that was that was very well done. Um, Since you you mentioned maps, um, I think I'll jump ahead to a question that I wanted to uh, also ask you, um, which is is about maps and how they figure as such important iconographic documents within your book. Um, There are a number of them, but maybe you can select one that you think is particularly important um, and speak about it in greater detail and explain how it provides important information about the experience or representation of mental illness.
2: So, so the maps are in this book in part because I'm I'm a little bit jealous of geographers who can always use <laughs> use this map and um, all, also because Paragram so the editor has a real competence in map and so I was happy to work with them together. They have people that are doing nothing else than maps the whole day, and so uh, for me it was also an experiment. What can you, what which stories can you tell with with with, with with maps. And um, so there are several ones that I really like. One of my favorite ones is the one dedicated to the patients of the Seine Departement. So Paris is in a larger administration that is called the Seine Departement. In 1914, so just before the World War One broke out, and um, this department, uh, the Seine Department, so Paris had a lot of, of asylums that were managed by themselves, one inside in, inside Paris and several around Paris, but the majority of of uh, the inmates that came from from Paris were spread to France, and mainly for economic reasons. So, um, if you put an inmate into a Paris asylum in the end of 19th century, you had to pay 2.5 francs, and if you put it in a provincial department uh, asylum, you have only you had only to pay 1.2 francs. So, uh, for economic reason, they put a lot of inmates. Uh, in outside of, of Paris. And when you put it on a map, you see that most, more than half of the population was outside of Paris. And then all the question of the links you still have, can have with your friends or with your family appears in a completely different, um, representation. If you read it, you say, okay, that must be difficult if your, if your cousin is, for example, in uh, Clermont-Ferrand and not in Paris where his family lives or his friend lives. But if you see it on a map, it, or at least for me, it became far more evident, and especially if you see it on the map and you see how many people, so the bigger the circle is, the more people were in this uh, French department, and when you see then how many big circles are outside and very far outside of Paris, you really see difficulties of of this idea of keeping touch with family or friends, and you know that... the the only way to get out or often the only way to get out of an asylum was that family or friends were again uh, ready to take you back and if you are like two or three hundred kilometers of, uh, away from them it's very difficult to, to keep this, this contact. So um, that, that is one of the maps which I really liked.
1: That's really fascinating. Um, let's get a little bit into the chapters now. Uh, in chapter one you spend some time speaking about the figure of the court jester in the Middle Ages. The translation into English loses the reference to insanity that the French term has, le fou du roi, or the fool of the king. What does this figure reveal to us about the history of madness in the Middle Ages?
2: So, um, le, le fou du roi, or so I will stay with the French uh, word, illustrates perfectly the complicated story of madness in the in the uh, in the Middle Ages, where it is not clearly defined as a, as a as a topic by. Neither by 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 religious clergymen nor by by physicians, so it's it's something that is not well defined, as, not as in the in, in the early modern times, and so the the images we have about the Middle Ages are also very much influenced by the by the nineteenth century, where, where stories on the Middle Ages became again very popular. Let's just think about Victor Hugo's Notre Dame where La, La Fête des Fous is a central element, which later become that also a central element in in some uh, Disney uh, films. And so the uh, Fou du Roi was a person, and it's not clearly defined if he's really mad, but a person that is different, that lived uh, at the court in order to entertain the king or the queen or the prince or a bishop or, or a rich merchant. And so they were there to, to entertain and to make law. And the French historian, uh, Bernard Guénet, described them, described them as... Petit human, de company. So as, as house pets, in a certain way. So they were there, like like today we can we use animals. Uh, one of the functions of man, man could be or was at that time, as as a house pet, as a house pet, so to, to entertain and to make love.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: In Chapter 2, you include an 1866 wood carving by Charles Larrue, which depicts an episode of the Convulsionaries of Saint medard dating from the 1720s and 1730s. Why was this event still memorable over 100 years later?
2: So yeah the the I'll first explain what the uh was, so it was a religious movement from the beginning of the 18th century where some members, not everybody, experienced convulsions, and it was very present in, in Paris, and at that time, France was in a political and religious upheaval. And so through this movement of conventionnaires, several religious, theological, but also political topics were heavily discussed. And what is especially interesting for the historian of madness is that this movement printed several stories of people that experienced these convulsions. And so it's for the first time that, that the historian has a larger corpus of archives that gives us access to the voices of the madman. So beforehand, and even today, often our sources are more written they are written on the madman by physicians or by um, priests or by nurses, but seldom they are written by the madman himself What is interesting um, here is that we have already in the 18th century uh, that, that the voices of these madman are, are, are printed. What is also interesting is that later on, so in the 19th and 20th century, the Confucianer proved to be a a fascinating group for the experts of of madness. So, for example, uh, psychiatrists working on hysteria in the end of the 19th century uh, described this Confucianer as forerunners of the hysteric women. So they did this retrospective diagnosis and and they, they find that or they found that these hysteric women had the same or similar uh experience than the conventionnaire and then what is interesting in the twentieth century, the psychoanalyst uh again did a retrospective um diagnosis by uh saying that um this this conventionnaire were the typical example of people that repressed uh their feeling their feelings sorry.
1: That's really fascinating. So what were some of the ways in which revolutionary madness was constructed in images during the 19th century?
2: Yeah, so that's that was a very interesting topic to write about. In a certain way, you can interpret large part of the history of the 19th century as a way of restoring the, the order that has been severely disturbed by the French Revolution and all the other revolutions that follow in the, in the 19th century. And so saying that uh, the revolutionaries were mad was a way to disqualify them. So you could say, okay, th- th- that, that was madness and we should go back to an order of the 18th century. And for example, and then you have one of the examples, Théroigne de Méricourt, who was one of the few revolutionary re- women. She, she was also described as mad, mad as, as, a, as someone who, who was in favor of the revolution, but also mad that a woman should never go into politics. And so there was a whole narrative of arguing that um, that the only people that were in favor of revolution were uh, mad people. And at the same time, uh, you had also a narrative saying that revolution made people crazy. And so a lot of psychiatrists were writing books in the 19th century trying to demonstrate how after revolutionary events one could observe peaks of madness. And again, that was an argument saying, okay, revolution is bad because revolution produced madness. So in in, in both ways, in both narratives, um, the link between madness and revolution was a way to discredit uh, revolution.
1: In chapter four, you have a capsule entitled One Psychiatry at Two Speeds. Can you explain this section a little bit further for our listeners?
2: Yeah so this chapter tries um to to show that inside psychiatric institutions class is one of the fundamental markers it's it's not so much about diagnosis it's not about gender and it's a lot about class so the typical image we have about asylums are these very large asylums but they were mo- mostly for for very for poor inmates that could not pay um for 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 for, for medical uh, Care and inside um, these large asylums, conditions were very poor, uh, and these large institutions and the name of asylum uh, were, with, were afflicted with stigma. But beside this, and in France, it's, in France it's mainly state psychiatry existed a network of private, smaller institutions, and they were designed designed for families with money that wanted their family members in settings that resembled the, the bourgeois family life. So um, these institutions were built in green surroundings of Paris, often accessible by tram- tramways, uh, you had pianos, you had libraries. Um, so it, it, it was in a certain way a copy of the environment where the people were coming from. And they were not called asylums, but maison de santé, ou sanatorium, ou clinique neurologique. And and the advertisements for these institutions did not use the words of madness but spoke rather of nervousness. So um you had you had at a certain way two psychiatry. You had the psychiatry for the poor and then you had the psychiatry for the rich. And and I think that that's a very, very important narrative when you're speaking on, on psychiatry in the nineteenth and twentieth century.
1: Yeah, I do have to say that the images of les maisons de santé look rather luxurious, actually.
2: Yeah, but they they had the money to pay, and it was really a copy. So it it was to reproduce um, the bourgeois environment these people know from from their home.
1: So throughout your book, you also include images of advertisements for psychiatric drugs. What can we learn about the tensions between the experience of mental illness and its representation by comparing, for example, these advertisements for psychopharmaceuticals and then patient accounts of taking these drugs, did the patients experience the so-called psychopharmaceutical revolution as such?
2: Yeah, that that was one part of the book where I've all also done a lot of, of research. So the, the introduction of phenolaptics is certainly one of the most researched topics on the history of psychiatry in the 20th century, and for a long time... Historians reproduced produced the narrative of some of the psychiatrists who defined this, this introduction of neoleptics as a therapeutic revolution. But in the last 10 years, this narrative has become more complex uh, for several reasons. First, the history of psychiatric drugs and biological therapies did not start with neoleptics. So um, today there are a lot of, of research done on drugs that were already used in the 19th century. And you see that these drugs were already used on a, on a massive la- level in ethanolism. And from the nineteen twenties on several other biological therapies that were also defined as revolutionaries, as 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 revolutions, were already inside the asylum, be it the insulin therapy, the electroshock therapy, or lobotomy. Today this, this therapies are like uh are, are no longer or are, are less used, but at that time they were considered as 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 also as revolution second point that makes the, the, the narrative more complex is that not all psychiatrists did share the enthusiasm of their, their colleagues. Um, for some, um, neuroleptics did not uh, work or did not work better than adult therapies and Saint-Anne, which is the major, uh, major psychiatric hospital in, in Paris where the neuroleptics were invented, some psychiatrists remained opposed to the new drugs for several years. Um, and other um, psychiatrists were very skeptical because they said that neoleptics sedated the patients too much and defined neoleptics as as chemical lobotomy. And then uh, finally uh, in historiography there has been a real interest in the voices of of the patients in the last 20 years and that has also changed um, the narrative because some patients welcome the new drug and and when they get the the new new drug they say oh we are finally cared for and there's finally a therapy but there are also other patients that complain uh, complain about uh, about the drugs about the side effects about being too sleepy about having skin problems so um in general um like always when when you have a, a broader picture when you're not talking only about the two or three famous psychiatrists but if you integrate uh, normal psychiatrists, or not, not famous psychiatrists, if you include uh, nurses, if you include patients into your narrative, and so also at the sources you are looking at, the, the story becomes far more complex.
1: So, what about works of representation produced by patients themselves? Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the first international congress of psychiatry and the patient artworks that were put on display.
2: Yeah, so after very quickly after Second World War, some French psychiatrists launched the idea of an international congress of Congress of Psychiatry, and uh, in 1915 psychiatrists from around the world, with the exception of the communist bloc, gathered in in Paris, and uh, as it was usual usual at that time and still today, a social program was organized for the participant. And among other events, an exposition with patient artwork was uh, put up. And artistic works by patients had already interested some psychiatrists from the end of the 19th century on. But you have really a change in in, in that in 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 the interwar period, um, and then really after World War II. And um, so this exhibition that resembled about 300 works uh, of art. Greatly contributed to the legitimization of what is called today art brut, and which is today completely integrated into the 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 art market. Um, And uh, it's still today, on the other hand, a very difficult topic. But on because on the other there's still a discussion going on. Is it only uh, has it only a therapeutic function, so um, making people work um, and uh, express their feelings, or is there real artistic? uh, inspiration behind uh, this art. but so this this um, first international congress of psychiatry and the exposition that went along with this um, with this uh, congress was a very important moment of legitimization of, of, of this art
1: did the physicians by chance use the images as a way also to diagnose do you know anything about that
2: so there has been a, there has been some some projects on that uh, in Paris in the in the 60s they tried to computerize all these images so they had they had a huge data bank in order to see okay does people that have schizophrenia paint other in another way than people that um, are depressed so there has been a lot of, of of, of especially the 60s and the 70s, trying to 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 use it as a diagnostical tool. I think that today it's no longer or it's no longer used in a, in a systematic way to to establish diagnosis. It's more used in at one point at one hand as as uh, a therapy, as uh, and then on the other hand, it's also for some it's a real uh, field of art, and then uh, it goes in other direction. Then it's in museums, it's sold. Um,
1: so how has the power of representation been harnessed by the anti-psychiatric movement and also the mad pride
2: movement? Yeah, what is important about these two movements that start in, in, in the 60s is that for the first time, you or well, not for the first time, but uh, there was already a similar movement at, at the end of the 19th century. But you have now from the 60s on, on, on a very regular and systematic way, uh, no, not longer only um, psychiatrists or nurses that are talking about madness and that in a certain way say we are legitimate to talk about madness but you have also patients and um, these patients uh, so they they use they they try to invent new language to talk about it so um, they, they for example they call themselves no longer patients but for example uh, survivors or um, so that, that's one part and then on the other hand they also sometimes do a reappropriation of language and trying to 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 redefine uh, words that have a negative connotation into something positive and um that's typical of this mad pride movement where they use for themselves the, the the name or the word of mad and say okay we are pride of being mad and being mad is something you can be pride of and then then they try to change uh, the, the, the 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 signification of of the name and that's something where they they in a certain way they, they took that over from the black power uh, movement where also black was considered for a long time as something negative and then it was in a certain way retransformed in, in something uh positive and that's also something if you if you work on the history of psychiatry what is interesting is that um the anti-psychiatric movement or the map my ma- movement are not happening outside of 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 society they are not only part of the history of of psychiatry but they are also part of the history of society and so they they are clear links to other uh, social movements such as the the black power movement or the gay uh, uh, movement where they, where they where they overtook the same manner of 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 um slogans of of going into the streets um so that's also a very interesting um uh, point where you where you link the history of psychiatry to other uh, histories
1: I noticed that you included an image from the Mad Pride Parade in Paris in 2014, which features a photograph, again, of an individual dressed as a court jester. So there is also another example of a reappropriation of an image that we've already discussed today. Um, so we're sort of at the last question that I wanted to ask you, which is how I end all of my interviews. Um, and I wanted to know what was the most surprising or unusual discovery that you made while conducting research for this work?
2: Um, so I really liked writing the chapter on kleptomanie, which was a diagnosis for bourgeois women that were stealing inside the, the, the new large grand magasin in Paris in the second half of the 19th century. And it was in a certain way not possible that they did it... Um, when they went for the society at that point, it was, they could not imagine why bourgeois women would steal something. And so they had to invent a madness for them. And it was called kleptomanie. But for me, the most interesting discovery was um, the existence of a group of patients in, in the sixties in, in France, um, which is called Méchant handicapé, which I find already a very funny name. So um, how do you, I don't know how, how you would translate it in, in, in English. Um, méchant, how do you translate that in English?
1: Um, um, well, do you mean mad people? méchant, méchant or?
2: yeah, méchant, how did you... Those,
1: those who are angry, maybe? Oh, or? Yeah,
2: but it's also that they are not nice, you know, méchant is also meaning not nice, so it's like the not nice handicapped, and I really like this... Um, this name, which is very radical in a, in a certain way, you know, and and um, and what is interesting is that the history of this group is largely uh, unknown, and they have a very interesting. They they publish a very interesting uh, magazine where where they had very radical demands of what it would mean for them to being integrated in, into society. And so, um, yeah, I I I I really like the name of the group and also their their, their way of expressing it in in, in their in their magazine.
1: Well, I have to say thank you so much for your time today, Benoit. It was really interesting to speak with you about your book.
2: Thanks for inviting me.
1: And thank you to everyone to listen, who listens to new books in science. I'm Maya Wollner until next time.